Hello and welcome to Subject to Blackout. My name is Timo and with me as always is Mike. Mike, how you doing? Pretty good, Tim. How are you? Good. Uh, we were off last week because we were both a little busy, but in the meantime, we both had a chance to view Speed Racer by the Wachowskis. And, as uh, one does. As one does. When, they have, when they're busy and they have a bye week, you yeah. watch Speed Racer. Yeah, of course. Uh, so... One of the reasons uh, why I wanted to do this was because, and we haven't talked about this, but uh, I don't know if you've seen the new Matrix yet, but the new Matrix was, in my opinion, such a bizarre movie. Uh, And I had heard that Speed Racer is also quite the bizarre movie that I wanted to see if if one might inform the other or if if perhaps the Wachowskis were just doing something weird that... uh, that should be noted. And Mike, I don't know how you feel about that. I definitely think it informed upon the Matrix uh, that just came out. And uh, it's definitely fucking weird. I mean, let's let's be real, though, that the Matrix has a strong legacy of after the original Matrix being weird. Yeah. So it really just feels like I haven't seen the new one. I'm like... That's something that I'm like not dying to see just because it the reviews were kind of like shrug. Yeah. Um but yeah, Speed Racer is weird. I have a feeling I'm going to take this in a different direction than you are, which is good. Um but yeah, what were your what were your initial thoughts about Speed Racer? And before that actually, this wasn't something this is the first time seeing it. I know that came out in 2008. I remember like seeing all the trailers and stuff, but I also remember the reviews being like terrible. Yeah. So I I never ended up seeing it at the time. And then actually one more thing. There's there've been what 30 episodes and now this is how many how many movies about cars have we watched now? <laughs> 10? <laughs> 10 movies about cars. This was this for me was a car movie about family. <laughs> And that's what made it really different. <laughs> yeah, this is the first car movie that we've watched um, without Vin Diesel in it, which is which was which was strange. His his absence was felt. <laughs> it certainly was. <laughs> nobody nobody was like clutching a steering wheel with just like super buff forearms, just trying to like trying to be really really bald and intense. Uh, yeah, I didn't put uh, two and two together, but that sure does make four. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this this adds on to the, the furiously fast film fest. <laughs> oh, I put anything, it together. The, se- the second this movie started, I was like, wow, we've done a lot of fucking car movies. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll <laughs> stick away from car uh, movies for a while. No uh, Herbie the Love Bugs anytime soon. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, what initial thoughts? What, what, were you, what were you thinking? My initial thought was i i heard this was visually a a unique movie and that Mm. certainly started to come across immediately i mean it literally opens up with like a kaleidoscope before any credits or anything right yeah it's like Um, a long car y movie yeah and uh my fear when putting it on was the first half an hour was I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sit through this whole thing. Uh, and in the shortest of of spoiler free notes, I thought this movie rounded out to be something that I thought was visually unique and interesting. Uh, clearly paid great attention and homage to the original series. 
uh, and was a perfectly fine family movie. And I don't quite get the hatred of it. I mean, there's a couple of things where they're kind of not making a family movie. They say shit and like people, I don't know if anyone dies, but people get pretty badly hurt. Yeah, um, it's, it's violent. It's a violent movie, but it it, is, it's like comic violence. But yeah. It's, yeah, but it's not like, violence. yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they, a couple of characters swear a couple times, but he like, gets his finger eaten by piranhas. Yeah. The evil henchmen are, you know, comically evil, evil and, yep. and over-exaggerated. And I right. mean, most of the characters are over-exaggerated, but I thought like if my nephew who I, I just saw yesterday was like, Hey, uncle Tim, can we watch a car movie? Like this would be something that I could enjoy with him. And, and I thought that was I thought this was a perfectly acceptable movie with some really interesting visual uh, uh, techniques and and decisions. How about you? I mean, I mean, I you you know me because I've chosen movies for us to watch, um, like what's it called? That uh, Brazilian film that I think is brilliant, uh, Black Orpheus. Yes, I, I like movies that are like high style. Mm-hmm. Um, also why, you know, I am captivated by things like Blade Runner and like a lot of the, you know, science fiction that we've watched, we've talked about Dune, which is also just kind of like visually compelling and stunning. So, I mean, I love movies that are kind of like high style, even if they're like low content. Yeah. Um, I totally agree about the first half. A lot of the childhood stuff I like didn't necessarily need, although, I mean, it's not like the Speed Racer cartoon. You can't just jump people right into the middle. So it's a movie, so they have to create some kind of narrative and develop characters. I mean, my biggest criticism of this movie, honestly, is that because it's so high energy and so, like, visually loud, yeah, two hours is exhausting. An hour this and a half would long. be great. Yeah, this was... That was another criticism that I... Yeah, it was, it was like 2.15, too. Yeah. It was yeah, way so two, too long. So that's like my biggest criticism, but visually, I think it's awesome. I think that, and this is the direction that I'm going in. So I'll just like throw this out now since it's kind of coming up organically. But I think one of the major issues with the movie, I think, was in the marketing that it wasn't necessarily marketed to the right demographics. It was, re- it is more of like a child or kind of like teen movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that historically, and I have some examples here, uh, American audiences and in particular American critics have a problem with literally any interpretation of Japanese media. So, yeah, so let's because we've talked about some of these things on the show here. And I've also like looked up another example. But so 2008 Speed Racer. Okay. And I think the consensus was like that visually it was interesting. It uses the source material, but there's like all these issues with it. But the issues that are with it are kind of like the source material. The issues with it are that like the original cartoon is extremely over the top, that it is kind of shallow, that it is like a lot of really fast cuts and vibrant colors. 2017's Ghost in the Shell. American audiences and critics freaked out because of whitewashing, even though Japanese audiences were like, this is fine. Yeah. Um, but um, American critics in particular were sort of like confused by the pacing and the interpretation of the environments. 
from the Ghost in the Ghost in the that Ghost in the Shell source material from the, like the nineties, and then most recently we watched Cowboy Bebop, which we thought was very cool and high style, and American critics also divided on this. There's this strong American interest in Japanese animation, and I think it's even getting bigger. It used to be just sort of like a like a niche weeb thing, but now it's coming becoming a little bit more sort of part of like bigger American culture. There's like musicians and hip hop artists who like really embrace. Yeah. That. And, and we've had movies like Lupin the third as well, which were interpretations of anime. Um, but rarely I, I have not encountered a Western live action version of a Japanese film that was really well reviewed across the board. There's always confusion about it. So I yeah, think some I, of the criticism comes from that sort of like, cultural reaction to basically drawing on certain types of aesthetics that are incorporated into Japanese animation into Western live action films. Yeah. And I don't know if this one applies because I don't know the creators of Avatar, but that is also another anime that was. Oh yeah. uh, I I don't know if that's uh, a Japanese product and that movie could just be bad. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, because Night Shyamalan has a, a uh, mixed track record at best. Um, And like that also, as you're mentioning it, I'm like, again, I don't know if that's Japanese in origin, but it's certainly an anime and it's an American American, uh, live action adaptation. Also, seem to have numerous problems. Again, it could be in and of itself a bad movie. I don't know, nor care to watch that movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, it's not, um, now that you've laid it out, yeah, it is not, it is not a lone appearance of this sort of live action anime remake falling flat on its face. Yeah. So honestly, I think a lot of the criticism comes from a particular aversion to like this style of adaptation well and as you say this is anime has certainly become more mainstream uh over the last 15 20 years when we were in high school we knew some people who were into anime manga yeah whatever but that but they were lame yeah it was kind of lame and they're weird and you know you just called manga porn and that made them very angry and yeah and they're just naruto run away from you (laughs) Their arms behind their back, <laughs> like they're like they're going to Roswell. Arms akimbo, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's 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 very much. Uh, now that you put that forward, it's very much similar to what comic books started to go through in the mid two thousands, where good comic book movies um, weren't always received as legitimate. Um, cinema art yeah it was it was more like oh that's just a thing for the nerdy masses and spider-man's great success the original one uh by sam raimi um yeah the the darker tone of the early batman movies with uh michael keaton i think those started to get away from like oh yeah you know they made another Superman movie, whatever. It's a Superman movie. We don't have to think or talk about the themes in that movie. It's just about a good guy doing good things. Right. Um, I think in the mid 2000s, again, with Spider-Man, the X-Men starting to come out, it just gained a popularity that obviously where we're at in the culture right now, everything's a fucking comic book movie. Um, you know, whether it's a superhero movie or not, like 
the the culture has gone to, oh my God, we can take any title that worked in comic books and, you know, do it live action and throw it up on Netflix and, you know, it's going to be well received, um, hopefully. Whereas no, anime certainly yeah. has, it feels like it's in those early stages where there's all of these anime shows and, and uh, anime films that are now being slowly converted into live action adaptations. And we're very early on in that process, but it still feels like no one's really taking them seriously, especially looking back at 2008. So like, let's also look at that decade in context for how the landscape of American film was relating to comic books because and again, I'm just like trying to, I'm further driving this point home, but 2006 was Sin City, very well-reviewed movie that also went like Speed Racer in a direction of very high style and trying to remain sort of visually authentic and connected to the source material. And it was and, not like Spider-Man where it was just a live action movie. And a very unusual structure because in, that about a year one, later. Yeah. Because yeah, it was also a weird structure because it was multiple short stories mashed together into one film. Right. It was. So yeah, so it had that kind of like serialized, like kind of pulp fiction element to it. And then a year later, 300 comes out. Also, very leans very heavily into the visuals and aesthetics of the comic book to the point where both movies were basically trying to recreate, you know, comic panels mm -hmm. on screen at certain points. Um, and both of those movies extremely well received. And we, we still talk about them. Mm -hmm. So Speed Racer only comes out in 2008, a couple of years after these two movies, when audiences were already prepared for these types of things. And Speed Racer falls flat, even though I think it uses a lot of the same style choices and attempts to reconstruct the aesthetics of the original series in the same way that these other things did. Do you think, and we've talked about this, um, I would call it an issue now with the current demographic or not demographics, the current landscape of, of movies and cinema is that like those had the gritty factor. Cause like, you know, since it is obviously about a bunch of terrible people doing terrible things and people right. shooting them to death for doing that. Um, and then you got 300, which is entirely about a violent conflict um, in between right. two violent cultures. Um, and then you get Speed Racer, which on paper is doing the exact same thing with the exact same type of source material. And instead of being gritty, it's just a fun family movie. See, it's interesting you say that because that brings that brings us to the next thing that I was going to say is that on one hand, I mean, I think you're right that the the aughts were a very cynical decade and it shifted a lot of like action movies and fantasy movies into like a much sort of darker kind of focusing on much more dark subject matter, much more muted color palettes. Like it's easy to look at the transformation in the Harry Potter movies where the final movies were sort of like much more solemn and dark than the original. And that wasn't simply because the books got more solemn and dark. It was also changes in the, the culture of filmmaking. But there's one thing that I think is in Speed Racer that is consistent with those things. And it's that like we are looking at this sort of alternative history or or a near future like blood sport in the same way that like 
Like I saw this movie as paying homage, not just to Speed Racer, but to classic kind of B sci-fi like Death Race yeah. 2000. Yeah. Or, I was going to say Death Race. Yeah. Or Rollerball, the, 1980, yeah. the 1975 version, not the more recent version, where it's about corporate power. It's about blood sport and kind of spectacle. So there were darker elements and it's possible that if they had kind of played those up and tried to make it a more serious movie, it could have been more well-received. But I don't think... Yeah, I don't think when they set out to make this movie, the point was to really play out the sort of dystopian elements in the movie that are actually there. They were focused on other things and they were really focused on trying to like um, visually recreate Speed Racer and kind of focus on the over top over the top performances for some of these characters. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things we're talking about is the landscape of uh, film when this came out and just for context one week before speed racer was released iron man hit movie theaters yep so i mean that uh going up against that movie which is still one of the better movies in the marvel cinematic universe which has yep. taken over television and film right um like going up against iron man certainly hurt it but i think uh, to your point it's it's a critique of where the culture uh, was headed in in what they were requesting from their animation uh, uh, adaptations. And yep. I mean, we open up Iron Man basically prosecuting <laughs> and profiting from the war in Afghanistan yep. and being captured by terrorists and it all being this real gritty grounded in you know 2008's everyday minutiae of the war on terror like the hurt versus locker. this just fantasy world where planes don't look like they should fly and cars, cars drive weird yeah and cars can spin while going forward and yeah i mean it's what what they chose to do with this and there there is a world and it's probably coming up soon where someone is going to do a gritty remake of Speed Racer, and it's going to be fucking terrible. He's going to be drunk. He's going to get a DUI. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Drink Speed Racer. Um, yeah, and it's going to be awful and terrible, and it'll, it'll probably... get three seasons. Yeah, someone will probably be like, this is Oscar-worthy. Um, <laughs> and it's just going to be awful. Timothy Chalamet as Speed Racer <laughs> was... <laughs> the depth oh man yeah and his of his eccentric just, interpretation instead of his dad just being this heartwarming loving man he's just gonna be a drunk <laughs> like, dad you never loved me only loved rex the wrong kid dad <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean the, there's just such silliness and reverence for the silliness in this movie I don't know how you can't be charmed by it. I hate that fucking kid character and the monkey is stupid. Yeah. But like it and they did it too much. Again, this is a 215 runtime. Let's cut back on some of the monkey and fat kid shenanigans. Um, (laughs) But like it makes perfect sense that those characters are in there because they just reinforce the silly tone that this movie is 100% aiming for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, visually, I just like I love I love it. It's a lot of fast cuts, 
but you can tell how hard they worked to try and uh, sort of transpose the energy of the original. The sort of like overlays of announcers kind of moving by. You can see how they're framing shots where the actors were being a little bit more wooden. So it could just sort of like freeze frame or kind of like pan across a scene in the same way that you would see like in an anime. You have those sort of panning shots of the crowd. Like there wasn't somebody who was like actually like a cat person. And there would normally always be like one of those in like any kind of Japanese anime. But like the crowd shots were perfect. The announcer shots were perfect. The kind of fast cuts and dialogue behind the wheel for uh, like Trixie and Speed Racer were like dead on. So like all of that stuff was great. And obviously like the costume designs, like the really high contrast, like colors and tones, like looking at the neighborhood and stuff. Like, we're not looking at... There's no muted colors here. If something's going to be pink, it's going to be, like, fucking pink. Like, if something's (laughs) green, it's going to be really fucking green. So, it looks... It's as animated as something can be without without being animated or having Robin Williams in it. Yeah, in in kind of doing a little bit of uh, background research, I didn't go crazy, but... uh, I did. One of the things that... (laughs) I took it seriously. Step up. Hey, I do I, better. I didn't not take this seriously. <laughs> uh, one of the things that the Wachowskis at the time, and I, I don't know which one um, referenced when they were talking about this film was like cubism and James Joyce were influences on on how they approached this project. And I think the cubism makes sense. I mean, this movie is not styled like anything before or since in the live action medium. Um, Again, they are imitating mostly what's coming from the anime, but they're doing it in creative and unique and interesting ways. Um, You know, you'll have backgrounds moving in one direction and a character moving in the other in a way that that's not just the camera tilting. Like that is like how anime, um, you know, the background can be slid behind the foreground characters. And so you're getting that same visual aesthetic, but they're doing it with CGI mm. and bright colors and, and interesting patterns and designs and wipes and all this stuff. And I think the cubism aspect of it, like, uh, okay, yeah, I get that. I get what you're going for. Yeah. Colors and lines. And yeah. Shapes. Yeah. <laughs> Contrasting colors, lines, shapes. Sure. Yeah. Totally. There's that all over the place. Now, James Joyce. Uh, uh, maybe I, they, maybe that was like a cover because the movie from like a narrative standpoint is confusing and it makes me tired. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> just just like Ulysses. Yeah. Um, that's actually like, the second time in two days. Hennigan's Wake, this Ulysses doesn't make sense. Life. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I, yeah, I kind of get that. And it is too long, much like most of James Joyce's work. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I, it, when when viewed through that, uh, you know, information when viewed with that information at hand, like this movie makes perfect sense. They love the anime. They wanted to faithfully adapt it, but they also wanted to do something visually striking and different. And they also wanted to tell a really long, not that interesting story. Yeah, <laughs> but but. All of that kind of works for me. Um, But what I kind of wanted to view this for is the Matrix 
Resurrections, I believe is what it's called. I, yes. I, it, it made me so intensely interested to watch more Wachowski work because <laughs> I hadn't seen- How did you get here? I hadn't seen much stuff. And again, I don't know if that new Matrix movie is good, but it certainly is interesting. I would watch it again if anyone wanted to watch it with me. And, and they'd be like, oh, is it you like this movie? And I'd be like, maybe. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll have a, a, a more solid opinion after a second viewing, but I'm not sure that's possible. <laughs> but then in viewing this, it did kind of explain. One of the things that's really bizarre about Resurrections is how ugly the movie is. Like, it's not visually interesting. And the fight scenes suck. But now, with the intent and forethought that both the Wachowskis put into a movie like this and a movie like The Matrix, maybe the fight scenes suck and it's kind of an ugly film because that's what Lana Wachowski wanted it to be like. And that's one of the things that makes the film bizarre is all of these instances where you're like, wow, the Matrix was known for having these beautifully choreographed, amazing fight scenes. The Wachowskis know that. Lana Wachowski, who was the only Wachowski to return to the series, knows that. So why did they make really bad fight scenes? Is this intentional? Is the dialogue stilted and weird because that's a criticism of the previous, you know, (laughs) Matrix movies? Like, are they doing bad things that are off-putting because that was the intent? And it kind of feels like that. And it kind of feels like that more so after watching this movie. Like, You mean they, they purposefully and very deliberately made a mediocre movie to make a point about the other two Matrix movies, which were also mediocre. And, and one, which was something really that good. they definitely start talking about. So, yes. And for another reason, which is in both this film and Resurrections, is that they are both movies that are implicitly, in the case of uh, Speed Racer, or explicitly, like in the case of Resurrections, anti the film industry. Like... Everything about Speed Racer overlaid on the film industry is, you know, the big bad is corporate, you know, film and doing things just to make more money. And it's not even about the art. It's just about making more money, just like the big bad in this film is versus niche, you know, small projects where everyone's a family and working together. And it's not about winning or, or losing. It's about racing beautifully. You know, it's about making beautiful films that are important to you. And The Matrix Resurrections is explicitly, like, in the beginning of the movie, they talk about Warner Brothers, the person who made the fucking Matrix Resurrections movie. And they talk about, like, now they're doing it uh, in the uh, guise of video game industry. But it's all about how the corporate overlords are going to do it with or without you. And they want a Matrix 4 because the Matrix is a video game in the fourth Matrix. Like it's. Oh, yeah, it's weird. But it's like both of these films are very much anti-corporate power, uh, very much anti-mainstream film industry. And they're doing it within 
the film industry. It's very right. bizarre, very anti-capitalist sort of think pieces. And I think one does it a little bit more, you know, a lot more subtly in, in Speed Racer where it's just, you know, corporate greed is bad. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, again, seeing this movie did help me realize that, like, no, I think a lot more of the Matrix Resurrections is intentional than perhaps people are giving them credit for. Maybe it's ugly because it's supposed to be. I mean, without watching it, I can't evaluate. But like, yeah, that that sounds dumb. Sounds sounds a little dumb. I mean, your explanation might be right, but if that I, is actually I get what, it. what they did, it sounds kind of dumb. Sounds a it dumb. is kind of dumb. I can't express this to you clearly enough. It is dumb. Do they explain why Neo has a, has a beard now? And do you think Keanu Reeves has a contract where he's like, I will never ever shave my beard? I he's think got they that went beard. to Keanu... And I think they went to Keanu. I think Lana Wachowski went to Keanu and said, Keanu, Warner Brothers told me they're making a Matrix movie with or without us. Do you want to do it? And he said, not really. Whoa. And she said, well, me neither. (laughs) But they're going to do it with us or without us. Yeah. Do you want to get paid? He's like, I mean, do I have to cut my hair or shave my beard? And she's like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) All right. Fine. I got time. Do I have to do any like crazy choreograph fight scenes? No, we're going to do shaky cam and cut a thousand times. And you're not going to be able to tell that it's your body double. And he's like, and how much are we getting paid? A lot. So much. And he said, okay, sure. I like you. You know, I like working with Carrie Ann Moss. Let's do it. And that's what the movie basically explicitly says is that they're like, Hey, we're being forced to do this and they'll just make a new Neo. So why don't we just do it instead and kind of (laughs) sabotage the series and end anyone's expectations for a fifth or a sixth movie, but just making a mediocre movie on purpose. It's kind of what it feels like. And it kind of tracks with the fact that the Wachowskis didn't really want to go back to the series. And then out of nowhere, Lana Wachowski decided to do this thing and somehow got Keanu and Carrie Ann Moss back. I mean, w- w- one thing I will always be upset about now by this new Matrix movie is that it delayed John Wick 4, <laughs> which is awesome. And I have zero problems with because yeah, it's gratuitously violent. So, yeah. so I'm already critical of Matrix Revolution. You know? Yeah. It's barely Gun-fu. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just, all right, uh, we need to get from one beautiful, you know, set piece to another beautiful set piece. How do we do that? Uh, Well, they're in Rome and we need them in New York. So let's put them on a train. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. And Common will be there. (laughs) Uh, Okay. But is it just like a scene where they go from one place to another? Nah, they'll be shooting at each other the entire fucking time. Sure. All right. Cool. That makes sense to me. How do you explain that? They have silencers. Got it. (laughs) But that's like not like you would still hear. Shut up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So again, overall, I the sh- the movie needed to be way shorter. The first half hour, forty five minutes needed to be cut way the fuck down, and you need to cut out 
like the candy ceiling scene with the uh, younger brother and the monkey. Like all that shit needs to go to fucking hell because it sucked. <laughs> um, but like, uh, what's his bucket? Uh, John Goodman, who is lovely in everything he's in. Yeah, he's uh, good. He played a really the casting uh, was good. good role, and yeah. and his little scene where he's like, you know, there's not a day in my life where I don't regret saying what I said to your brother. Yeah, it hit me. You know, I I didn't cry or anything, but that got to me. You felt you felt his pain of of trying to protect his son and ending up losing him. Uh, spoilers, not really. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that sequel's not happening. No, no. I was like, oh, you thought you were gonna get another one. You were just used to the Matrix, where they're like, <laughs> "Yep, we're gonna do two at once." <sighs> Poor Matthew Fox really thought he was gonna have a, a you know, a sequel series under his belt, and instead, everyone's like, "Nope." nope. <laughs> uh, but yeah, John, I thought John Goodman was great. Um, Susan Sarandon was good. Yeah, I felt like she was a little underused. Christina Ricci, who was also in the Matrix uh, Resurrections, for like five minutes in, in a role where you're like, why is Chris, does Christina Ricci need this role? Like, what? And it's like, no, she probably just has a good relationship with the Wachowskis from this movie. Um, and I think, I think it was a good call to put her in bangs too. Cause she normally has a five head. That's kind of distracting. Uh, but she was good. And Emile Possibly Hirsch a six was good. Head. It could be a six. There's, there's a lot of forehead there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, like half her face. <laughs> it's like forehead she's got low eyes it's a disease it's a low eye disease <laughs> I, I thought i thought everybody was pretty good and i thought this is a fun movie that you could watch with a 12 year old and they would think that's rad yeah and, uh, I, I would agree with that i think it was fun yeah and i i didn't get like a 27? i think the criticism is unfair Oh, it got forty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So yeah, I thought it I think was worse. I think it's underrated. It's underrated. Yeah, I I think this is a mid sixties or seventies movie. Yeah, I would give it like a sixty one. Yeah, like it's sixty two. Ooh, uh, but yeah, sixty one. Sixty one, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I I enjoyed it. All right, Mike. With that, why don't we take a quick little break and we'll be right back. Next week on Subject to Blackout. I don't know if we've made this clear, but. Mike used to live in Beijing for the better part of a decade. With the Winter Olympics kicking off this past week, Mike decided that he would like to revisit some Chinese filmography that has made it to the Criterion Collection. In that vein, we've decided to watch the Zhang Yimou film, Raise the Lantern. Zhang Yimou is not just a noted Chinese film director, but he also directed the opening ceremonies of the Beijing Winter Olympics. I literally know nothing about this movie and am very interested to see it, but have almost no context of the plot or origin of this film in order to help better direct you as to what's coming. So join us, won't you, as we watch Raise the Red Lantern next week on Subject to Blackout. All right, Mike, we're back, and uh, I had someone the other day come up to me and be excited about the new Pokemon game. The person, and, probably me. And it was not you. Really? Who was it? It was somebody else? It was someone else. You? You've, do you have a podcast with that person? I do, do not. You, are they friends? Okay. Except I don't. Here's the problem. I don't remember who the fuck it was. And they're like, yeah, some people are hating on it, but it's pretty fun. And I was like, 
why are they hating on it? And they said okay. exactly what you said. They were like, oh, because of the visuals. But like my argument is that's just how, you know, it Pokemon looked games in look feudal Japan. Way. And I yeah. was like, that's exactly what Mike said. <laughs> so, Pokemon. Yeah. The Pokemon community are always like just douchebags about every single thing that Pokemon makes. They're the, the thing that you'll see in like Reddit and like Twitter and everything is like this like really just moronic ra- mantra of like Game Freak hates money. Like it's one of the it's like the seventh most profitable franchise of all time. Like I think they figured they figured it out. They know Game they Freak made hates a, money. They That's made a do mobile it. game that was killing people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no one got mad at them. They yeah. just got mad at the people for dying exactly so yeah it's, it's like oh not gonna get my money like gee not gonna get your 60 dollars god that's gonna really cut into that 80 billion dollar franchise <laughs> you fucking idiots so yeah so the pokemon community are always just like douchebags and so yeah like you have to kind of like take any criticism with a grain of salt because like everyone's always like ready to hate stuff and then the other thing the pokemon community will do will be like they'll like freak out about the sprites they'll be like i put together or like i data mined this nintendo ds game from 2007 and they like reuse the same sprites even though that like makes absolutely no sense that they would somehow be using the same software and all these other things it's like no it's it's a fucking pikachu it's gonna look like it's gonna look like that it's gonna look like that like every single fucking time so so i mean i think a lot of the reviews are sort of thoughtful and measured i think the pokemon community can pretty much be ignored because they've hated everything that's come out and they only like it 10 years later um the the visuals are like it looks cool but it's not like it's not like an xbox or a playstation game there's you know like like the like the way the trees are rendered it isn't like they're kind of like lush they're kind of like a little bit more stylized um the um kind of like distance management and some of the rendering is not great like you kind of come into an open area and you don't know what's there until you're kind of closer so it's like it introduces issues with some level of strategizing but i mean the point of the game this game that's made primarily for nine-year-olds is that you go into the pristine wilderness in a time before the contemporary pokemon era and you're sort of like encountering Pokemon and capturing them for the first time. And the horror and pleasure of that is that it's the same. It's the same. Yeah. Is that in the the mainline Pokemon franchise, did you ever play those? Not really. Any of them? Like I know how to play them. I've probably played them at friends' houses, but I never sure. owned a Game Boy or anything. Okay, so, right, but, I mean, something that everybody knows, but obviously, you're an 11-year-old, you embark across a whole country full of various cities and environments, collecting animals to cockfight with other people, uh, usually at some point, um, squaring off for a final showdown with an antagonistic organization to eventually become the greatest Pokemon trainer of all time. So Usually over a period of, of about two weeks. So yeah. a lot of speed racer. Right. It's Japanese. Um, so uh, now as I've played from childhood into adulthood, you start to realize that there's 
some kind of like hypocritical and even somewhat problematic elements to the underlying premise of Pokemon and the way that people treat it within the game. Because like I said, it is basically cockfighting. Your job is to take animals from the wild and then train them to be violent and kill other animals. And as you walk around in these cities and you realize like Pokemon are like powering electric grids and they're like uh, uh, aiding civil servants, you realize that like Pokemon are this sort of like enslaved underclass who are sentient but incapable of expressing their displeasure or their you know perspectives on marxism so except for uh except for detective pikachu who's just yes. cool with it because he's yes. actually like a possessed by ryan reynolds yes and uh and within the the game itself the games try to make you feel okay about this people are coming up to you the whole time and it's like wow your pokemon like really love you and they love you because you fight with them all the time like and people are always like insisting on it like it's sort of like a like a national platform like it's propaganda like pokemon love fighting that's why they fight with you pokemon don't they allow themselves to be captured they and you kind of like believe it you're encountering them in the wild they jump you know they come upon you by surprise and you're only like defending yourself and capturing them so you kind of like take all of these things and you're like okay yeah they love it everyone says they love fighting and they love me because we fight and then you have, like I said, these antagonistic organizations who are like, we want to restore the natural order. Pokemon shouldn't be enslaved. And eventually you depose those organizations and demonstrate that yours, your way is the right way because your Pokemon love you more because you're fighting everyone. So as an adult, you play these things and you start to be like, they're making some good points. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that... Team Rocket's need to- not wrong. Yeah. Like, like, let's let's hear them out. Like, because probably there's a place for compromise. Like, I think they're a little bit too radical, but they're making some good points. And I think in this game, again, the pleasure and horror of it are fully revealed that you're in this pristine environment. There are Pokemon walking around. Your job is to learn about them through capturing them. And you realize that because it's in a three-dimensional environment, it's not like a top-down thing. You can see them in place. They're not coming up to attack you. You're sneaking up on them while they're like eating and like socializing in groups and like sleeping. I got six feet away from that bear and then it randomly attacked me. It's like, no, you got six feet next to a bear. (laughs) Exactly. And you're, or you're just waiting until they sleep and then you're just capturing them. And because of the, like the mechanics of the game, that the more you capture, the more you fill out your knowledge of them in this Pokedex, you're just capturing just whole families indiscriminately. You'll go into a new environment and see like 10 things and just capture them all. Sometimes you'll just capture them because they're bothering you and you just want to do something else. You just like want to get rid of them. And they just clog up your Pokedex, just trapped in these Pokeballs forever. And you don't care. You'll turn around and realize this once vibrant landscape is now devoid of any life. It's amazing. But... (laughs) It, but oh, it, it pokes holes in the whole canon of explanations of like, no, they love it. So, so you're really raping the wilderness of its just <laughs> richness and diversity and uh, forcing these Pokemon to fight. Because there's, again, this is like before Pokemon. So there's no culture here of like fighting Pokemon. There's no sort of like implicit like they love us and work with us. You're the person who's creating these horrifying circumstances that theoretically 
will be greater developed and entrenched for hundreds of years. (laughs) It's Uh, awesome. I totally recommend it. But if you reflect on it, it's horrible. Now, is is it clear to you that this is biting social commentary or is it they don't get what they're saying and how awful it is or are you not sure either way i mean i think that game freak has gotten so deep that some of these discussions have happened internally and i'm sure designers at various points have been like what do you think about this but like also, Japan is not the culture where <clears throat> anybody's going to flip out and cancel anybody or be like highly critical on social media, at least in this way. So people are like rolling with it. It is a Japanese game for a Japanese audience that we also like. So I don't think that the, the culture is critical of it, first of all. Um, so <clears throat> I don't well, think. And there's nothing wrong with that's the fine. game doing yeah, it's this. A game. Right. Yeah. Because it is a game and it doesn't fucking matter. But the game but is not it's self-aware. Just, it's just interesting to me if the creators are now like, the world that we accidentally created is monstrous. It's a horror. And we should, we should turn that to 11 and make sure it's clear we know it's monstrous and you're a monster while playing it. No. Like I said, you see the foundations of the, the horrors of bondage of Pokemon. With and and no one is batting an eye on it. I mean, again, let's go back to the the Pokemon community and their stupid mantra: Game Freak loves money. Yeah. Game Freak does not have to criticize Pokemon because no. Game Freak can cash checks. But the writers of said video games might find it more uh, interesting. You know, it, a, a creative uh, on the project of creating the next Pokemon might think it's more interesting to play around with that idea of yeah the monstrous society that they've created right i mean one thing that is within the game and it's sort of like it has to explain a mechanic that otherwise does not make sense so you capture pokemon and pokeballs and like pokemon the anime the games all take place in sort of like a high-tech kind of near future environment like all japanese things where you can conceivably believe a device a technological device like a Pokeball has been made to shrink down Pokemon and then, I don't know, hold them in stasis. It's unclear what happens inside the Pokeball. It can't be great. I have a feeling they like being outside more than inside, but it doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> but within this game, again, because it's like 200, 300 years in the past, the first person to be a Pokemon researcher invent Pokeballs, they're made of like wood. And the explanation for why they still work is like, Pokemon have this weird thing where when you just like throw Pokeballs on them, they like shrink down and just get inside and love it. And you're like, I don't know about that. I think that's the beginning of the propaganda. I think that's yeah. the beginning. <laughs> like, it's just crazy. Like, uh, we don't have to look too deeply into it. So, so like, even that is the beginning of like, Pokemon are made to serve us. And like, you start seeing yourself saying and internalizing horrible things like, gotta catch them all (laughs) well like you'll see two pokemon fighting in the environment and you'll just capture them both and you'll be like see like they need us because they can't handle this just out in learners they need us to manage them i joe awesome joe rogan had someone say the exact same thing about black people on his last podcast (laughs) it's like so wild i totally recommend this game like the pleasure and horror are the same thing oh man 
I mean, like, where would they be with, without me taking care of them and making them fight other Pokemon? They'd just be out there, just like endangering themselves and each other. I just want to. I just want <laughs> a line in the new game to just be like, "Yeah, it turns out all Pokemon have an extra muscle in their legs." <laughs> it's just like, um, <laughs> um, I've heard that rumor about different things before. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I think it's great. I, I highly recommend it. It's cathartic to just run around. There's a whole lot of instant gratification of just like that belongs to me now. But the philosophical and ethical implications of the Pokemon series are clarified and left unambiguous in this game. Good. I You see this? So my uh, barrier to entry in this game is that I don't even own the system that it's on. Right. So that's a pretty high barrier for a game that I don't really think I would particularly care too much for because I'm not invested in the series. Um, but that might be something that like I go on Twitch one day and just watch someone stream because it does seem interesting. It doesn't seem like something I want to. I'll bring it around hundreds of you. dollars. Yeah, sure. But yeah, watching someone play that might be uh, might be right up my alley. Yeah, well. It's a shame you had nothing to say about that. It doesn't seem like you're emotionally invested or mm. or loving it at all. I'm going to forget about it in like a, two days. I fucking knew it. Uh, yeah, personally, uh, been doing a lot of weird random work shit because we're switching over our uh, operating software. So I've been extremely busy the past couple of weeks. I uh, went in the office yesterday, which was Saturday and working from home today. So uh, uh, I have not consumed a ton of of visual media i will tell you um pine grove is, is a performer slash band uh mm -hmm. that just released an album last week and their new album 1111 is really good and i enjoy a lot of it and uh i haven't really deep dive into the lyrics uh so much but there is one song that ends like forget what the specific line is, but he's like, I'm never going to let you down. And like the song um, ends like a half second later. And then mm -hmm. the next song starts and two seconds into it. The first line is, well, I let you down again yesterday. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, it's not funny. It, that, that line is a little bit funny. Uh, just the just juxtaposition can't not be funny, um, without full context. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's an album about self-reflection and there's songs about, um, you know, changing your your patterns and behavior and dealing with a world where people are ignoring topics such as uh, climate change and all that stuff. Um, and it's just really beautiful. There's uh, some of the songs have a little bit of a, a country twang to them. So I've been listening to that a lot cool. while I've been doing some work stuff recently. Uh, and the other thing is I did a thing that I haven't done before and I wouldn't have done it had I done it before uh, because I went out and I bought a physical copy of a movie, Mike. Um, On what For my media? 4K UHD TV. Uh, I haven't bought a physical copy of a DVD in like Are they, 15 years. Is it a years. DVD? Yeah. A well, DVD? it's a Blu-ray. It's a Blu-ray DVD. Uh, but it's a Blu-ray UHD, so it can't even be played in a normal Blu-ray player. But I have the Xbox and that plays UHD Blu-rays. And what I found out 
was uh, while Dune looked gorgeous at first, uh, Xbox has a known problem Mm -hmm. since its launch two Novembers ago where the Blu-ray player will just drop out the the visuals and keep playing the audio. The only way to reset it is whenever that happens, which they don't know why. Still, you have to eject the DVD, then reset the console, and then you can play it, and it may happen again in 20 minutes. Uh, and that's what keeps happening. Sounds like happening. a great purchase. All oh, I didn't know until the screen went black, and like I was like, uh, why are they talking in during this black scene? And then... I Googled it, and from November of 2020, people were complaining about this, and Microsoft has yet to fix it. <laughs> it's a Blu-ray player. How hard is that? Oh, my God. It made me so mad. So I didn't spend $26 wisely. Um, but yeah, so Microsoft, go fuck yourself. This is why everyone hates your products is because they're janky and don't work doing the simplest hacks. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, don't buy physical media. As always. Fucking sucks. Alright, Mike, that does it for this week. For those of you listening along, you can head on over to subjectoblackout.com to reach out to us. And there you can find links to all of our socials, including Instagram, Patreon, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, you can find Mike on Instagram and Twitter at the Name Taking Podcast. Mike, I want to thank you for joining me. Right on. 